The name of this song is Tears Began to Fall. This is uh, part two of our three-part look at the 1970-1971 vaudeville era of the Mothers of Invention. The tune that you just heard was the single version of Tears Began to Fall, which was released in uh, an alternate edit on the Fillmore East June 1971 album. You'll notice a couple of little differences in there. Here to continue now, uh, we're going to be picking up with our roundtable discussion, which we began in part one. And if you recall, we had uh, been talking about Professor Mick Eakers having seen the vaudeville band at the Bath Festival in Shepton Mallet in 1970. The conversation picks up from there on the ZappaCast. So you go to see them, and then not long after that comes this uh, album, Chunga's Revenge which is uh, dressed up as a Frank Zappa album, but is, in fact, um, there's a whole lot of vaudeville-era mothers on it. So I want to get both of your uh, takes on it. Um, What I can say about it is, 
that it is um, not my favorite of, of the vaudeville era albums, and I think the reason for that is that when I started buying the albums, and this was in the mid-80s, um, I started with Freak Out and then went, you know, Absolutely Free, Only Money, Lumpy Gravy, etc. I tried to do it in chronological order. And for me, Chunga's is the first album uh, that Frank released that doesn't have a real conceptual identity, if you know what I mean. It doesn't... Right, it doesn't have that whole kind of... It doesn't have a a kind of a complete package type of vibe to it, I guess is what I would say. But the individual songs are great. It's just kind of, you know, it seems a bit of a... To me, it seems a bit of a throw-together, although I've come to appreciate it more in recent years because tracks that have flown any on them like um road ladies and tell me you love me are some of my favorite um frank zappa rock songs um what did what do you guys you know what's your take on it want to start andrew um i think pretty much the same as you it, it is a bit disjointed but um i i, I suppose I'd, i'm listening to it from a different i, I was listening to it after I'd heard the Fillmore East and uh, all those other albums, uh, just another band. Um, so I didn't really think of it so much as a Flo and Eddie album. They were just on a, some of the songs. I never really, um, like you say, it was thrown together with uh, stuff from different eras, from the Hot Rats era. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really regard it as a vaudeville band album. That's okay. a reason. Yeah, I, I, funny enough, I, I didn't buy it when it first came out. I think I was ah. probably attempt to go, go to university and I actually bought it a few years later I had a friend who had it and he played it incessantly and University of Bognor Regis <laughs> yeah that's the one absolutely yes and uh, <laughs> I, I remember after having because I, I, I think I'd heard Fillmore East first and again I was I was again finding that a bit difficult and then on this one I thought ah oh, there's some better music on here in between the other stuff I mean now I've come to really appreciate the Hallville band I really like the singing what's going on at the time, I was like a lot of people. I was thinking, "Oh, it's not the old band, or oh, it's not as good." Well, it's, and sorry, we, we were saying before that um, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a few years younger than you, so I uh, I didn't actually know much about the early Mothers. Uh, yeah. Fillmore was one of the very first albums I ever heard of Frank's, so um, you know, I, I wasn't thinking, "Oh, I wish it was more like the early stuff at all." Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, what I liked about Jungle Revenge is, I mean. It's something he stopped doing later on. Chunga's included a nice wide range of music. As yeah. Scott said, there was sort of jazzy stuff and the, the comedy stuff and so on. And then later on, you can look at his albums and they're all over. This is a vaudeville one. This is a classical one. That's a good This point. is a rock album. Um, whereas if you look at things like Burt Weenie Sandwich and all those earlier records, they all had a bit of everything in it. That's and I true. really like that, and and that's one of the things I liked about Chung's Revenge. I thought, you know, later on, he's Frank. I think bowed to pressure and thought, okay, I'm going to make this for the classical fans. I'm going to make this for the the musos. Uh, this yeah. is for the guys who like the dirty songs, you know. Here's and, Thing and Fish. I like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I suppose if, if Leather had been released as it should have been at the time, then that would have been uh, absolutely yes. Pretty much after that was, as you say, a specific sound. A specific yeah because even the individual albums that came out of leather if you if you look you know at zappa new york and uh, studio tan and all that stuff they are all of one type you know those individual albums yeah 
yeah. bound together for that that purpose. That's a good point, actually, Mick. I didn't really think about that because, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, just another band from L.A. is, you know, that one, you know, it's one type of thing. And uh, the, the Fillmore East album is one type of thing. Certainly 200 Motels is. Um, that's a good point. This this does kind of cross the uh, cross the, a lot of boundaries, actually. Yeah, well, I, I think it's because like, I, I sort of I grew up with I bought the records as they came out, and of course they were all different. And, and you had to in those days you really had to work hard to be a Zappa fan because you were going to get Lumpy Gravy one week and then Ruben and the Jets, and mm-hmm. so, so you prepared to work hard, and then. Um, Uncle Me, which I think is one of the best, fantastic range of stuff on that. Yeah. And, and then, as I, as I say, Chung, um, Bert Weenie Sandwich, Weezer's Rip My Flesh, again, both had a really great mixture of rock and roll, blues, avant garde, sonic stuff. And, you know, I like that. I like sort of some of the later compilation type records that have that mixture on it as well. And here we have a track that. Uh could have come out on the Chunga's Revenge album, but didn't. Uh, it's actually a track from the Hot Rats period, and it was pressed on an acetate single, uh, along with the version of Charlena that later appeared on the Lost Episodes album. Um, the name of the track is Bogner Regis, and uh, to this day it has not been released on an official Frank Zappa album. So here for Professor Mick Eagers... Here's Bogner Regis.
Yeah, I think um, we should go around and, and talk about um, highlights and uh, kind of lowlights, if you will, of um, of Chunga's Revenge. Now, I know that the if if I were to, you know, obviously I would highlight something like um, uh, Road Ladies or Twenty Small Cigars, of course, is a classic yep. piece. Absolutely. Uh, Tell Me You Love Me is another one. And, of course, the title track, but... You know, I think things like the clap are kind of filler. <laughs> yeah, I hate to use the word filler, but you know, it it does strike me as as Frank attempting to do on his own what you know what the mothers would do in improvisations on stage, that kind of thing. I could be wrong about that, but that's my take on it. I, 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 well, I translate the boogie. The open is a great track. Yeah, yeah. That's a style of uh, that kind of. Um, uh, Hungarian minor outside soloing type of thing that uh, I still don't really understand, but I'm getting there. <laughs> no, it's, it's my favorite stuff. Yeah? <laughs> really, I'm, I'm one of those weirdos who, who thinks that Lumpy Gravy is the best album. Actually, I do. That's arguably my favorite album. That or Uncle right. Meat. I mean, you know, I just I just love it. I love the, the style of soloing on Transylvania Boogie. It's just... You know, as a guitar player myself, it's so hard to think that way, you know? I mean, I have to, con- in order, if I'm going to play a guitar solo, I have to consciously go outside to think that, you know, to think like that. And, um, you know, that's kind of something that Frank did uh, almost on a sort of mon- molecular level, you know? He didn't really have to think about it very much, apparently, because, you know, he, he did that a lot in those uh, in those days. There, you also have things like the Nancy and Mary music. Yeah, that's probably my least favorite. On the album, yeah. Yeah. That that's kind of you know that's another piece of film. But I think that was done to sort of showcase George, was it not, George Duke? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. 
Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, I mean that's that's the other that's the other nice thing about it is this is where George's influence starts really coming in as well, and he's like the a key factor going across the you know to the next band after after the accident and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's and, uh, um, well put. I mean, I, I suppose the thing about the Vaudeville band is they were a lot better musically than they're given credit for. I and think I, that's I think true. So, certainly, Phil Maurice, I mean, and again, this friend, he, he'd come into it late and he would just play, you know, he would play the sort of groupy things over and over again. Every time you saw him, he'd come up to you and punch you on the arm and go, hey, eight inches or less, and so forth. <laughs> he was obsessed with that humour, you know. And after a while, I was thinking, oh, there's more to it than that, you know, but hey. That's what we were saying when we were talking to Tom the other week that. Um for me, you know, uh, a lot of people my age got into Zappa through those sort of albums, and it was you know, the juvenile humour that uh, drew us in, and then we yeah. outgrew it and re- appreciated the other stuff uh, before and after that, you know, um, later, you know, later on. You know, it's it's interesting over here, um, I'm sure it's that way in merry old England too, that um, uh, the original, the, the fans of the original band that I know generally do not like the vaudeville era material that much you know some of them grew to like it um certainly tom brown's a big fan of the vaudeville band stuff but a lot of the fans of the original mothers of invention are just not maybe it's i guess it's because it it was just too different no that's that's absolutely right it it was and it was i say i appreciate a lot more now i would you know i can sit and listen to billy the mountain and things like there's so much going on here this is as valid as anything else but at the time and as I say because of perhaps new fans coming along and only appreciate that I was thinking oh you know and then later on when sort of Grand Bazook came out it was like oh whew, he's back again you know this is what we really came to see and I sort of picked up on him again up at that period I guess I don't there was a lot of very you know kind of fierce musicianship going on in the band but the band had a very raw sound compared to you know the vaudeville band um at least in 1970 anyway they got a little more refined in 71 when don preston came back and all that kind of stuff but they had a very raw sound in 1970 would would you guys agree with that yeah i wonder um if, if that was in any way down to jeff simmons or not at all because jeff was only in that band in that original yeah that could be yeah that's that's a good point they just it you know all the recordings feature a band that feels very you know i guess the word would be raw for lack of any better way to put it because it got more refined as they you know that band the the vaudeville era to me it it grew um by leaps and bounds as it went along and they were at their peak on that last european tour in 71 when it all literally and figuratively came crashing down so you know they they were well on their way to um i i don't know where they could have gone actually after that it could well be that frank was just kind of done at that point i mean you know you you kind of get that feeling because really you know if you think about it what else could he have done with them really you know he if he was going to move into that kind of wazoo type of direction and they certainly you know yeah wouldn't have been comfortably along for the ride so no i, th- I think not i think i can't remember somebody told me this so uh, they his band i think it was the vaudeville band i could be wrong 
but one of one of his bands had been sort of supporting Marvishnu Orchestra. Yeah. And he he stepped back at that apparently and thought, oh my god, I need to up my game. And I think, I think that's probably the start of the Roxy band, wasn't it? Yeah. And and that's when he sort of really started getting you know everyone in the band was a virtuoso. If they could do comedy as well, that was good. But even Napoleon was a great singer and a great horn player and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. He moved into that. But yep. um, it's, it's interesting as well, because if you look at it in the whole, amongst all the 50 or so albums, it, it's one little small interlude compared with all the rest. And so it doesn't sort of stick out so much as when you've had sort of five or six albums you really love and then three albums that are very, very different. Yeah. And you think, oh God, the world's ended. It's, it's all just going to be this now. Yeah. See a perspective. <laughs> and it's fine, you know, it's just as fine as Valley Girl and any, any other sort of oddball things he's done as well. And here to give you an idea of how well those mothers could really play is a version of King Kong that was recorded at the Gaumont Palais in Paris, France on December 15, 1970. Uh, this one features the uh, Flo and Eddie era lineup with Jeff Simmons on bass, George Duke on keyboards, and Jean-Luc Ponty on violin. Here on the ZappaCast for you now, a little musical interlude, King Kong.
that kind of leads on to um, the what I call the Pencil Front album or the uh, Fillmore East June 1971 album. And I know that, uh, Mick, you've already said that you're not a huge fan of, of this record. Or you might be now. I've, now I'm happy. I've, I've sort of listened to all of the stuff so many times and I can quite happily listen to that and enjoy that and, and see much more in it than I did at the time, you know musically and performance and so forth so yeah i do like it now i like the band now yeah i mean certainly over in in the united states this was a a very big you know i mean by frank standards this was a very big album for him and it sort of became a a kind of albatross around his neck because um for the next many years everywhere he went you would have to put up with people yelling for mud shark every night so yeah (laughs) Yeah, but then he came up with Dynamo Hum and got the same thing again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> the man knew his audience. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So, I think that was the, commercially one of his most successful records, wasn't it? I it, think it very was. Very cheap to make. Yep. The Fillmore album. Yeah. 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 I honestly, don't. I honestly don't know about the uh, album sales. You know, I know that uh, Hot Rats was big over here, but you know, in terms, of, it got to about number eighty or something. But none of it was massive, was it? Yeah, I think that, as the commercial says, it, it got to, into the charts at, for one week at number 99 and then dropped out over here. That's what happened to Hot Rats. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of weird because he was on, you know, I mean, Bizarre Reprise was distributed by Warner Brothers. You would think that they would put more effort into um, breaking those, uh, you know, breaking those albums, but... You know, obviously that was one of the issues that he had with that label because until Overnight Sensation came along, Warner's did relatively little to promote Zappa product. So, you know, but there was a lot of FM radio play for things like the Mud Shark at the time because I don't, I think that the Mud Shark um, doesn't have any objectionable language in it per se. It might have some objectionable concepts. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could get away with playing that in a way you couldn't get away with playing Do You Like My New Car or, you know, What Kind of Girl You Think We Are and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Um, what did you, I mean, now, how did you, uh, Andrew, how did you kind of um, work your way back to Fillmore East album? I, well, I didn't really work, that was one of the first albums I heard. Ah. So, it was sort of burnt weenie, hot rats, and Fillmore. Um, that's about the first three albums I heard. All very different listening experiences. Yeah, in, in quick succession. So, uh, and I, 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 I guess it would be true that um, I, I, I like the Fillmore the least of those albums. But um, yeah, um, and, and I think I would get yeah, just another band from LA. I, I also heard. So I probably uh, when did that come out? Was that seventy two or early seventy two? Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah, that was my sort of early. I, I, before I'd even bought any albums, those were the first sort of things I'd heard, and uh, so I didn't actually work my way to it. Uh, it was already there. No, I was just gonna say, I, I, I suppose I came back to it over the past over the past fifteen or so years. More recently, when I sort of started filling in the holes in the collection with the CDs, when all the right records came out, and I started playing the records to my kids as well, and they, they all really. They liked the funny ones as well, and that, that sort of 
found a new audience through them. But um, so I guess I came to it. And if you'd asked me the same question 20 years ago, I'd have said, "Oh no, that was a bad period. I don't listen to that stuff." But now I can see it as part of the. And then the other thing, thing. the other thing, of course, is that um, Frank obviously it obviously meant a lot to him because he was playground psychotics. Uh, he wanted them back in the band in '87, '88. Uh, Dweezil's now doing this thing with, uh, with yeah. They obviously, uh, you know, he, he, he holds Flo and Eddie in high regard. Frank certainly did. Had, a, had good, uh, good fun with them. Excuse me, my cat's knocking things over. I'm just going to go and attend to my cat. Doesn't make all that racket back there. Come into my world. I don't know. I think, um, yeah, it's interesting because you have on on this album, of course, you have um, basically uh, 200 Motel-style, you know, groupie opera that uh, runs for yeah. most of the album. And then, then it just kind of, um, which ends with Happy Together, and then it just kind of jumps into the to the improvisation with Don Preston, which is called Lonesome Electric Turkey. And from there into Peaches and Tears Began to Fall, which is almost a completely different, you know, type of type of uh, thing to the groupie opera. So, uh, you yeah. know, it's kind of... I mean, I think, again, with hindsight, things I'm enjoying, this thing, I love Tears Began to Fall. Yeah. And Happy Together come from that. And, that, you know, I think, oh, this is great. This is doing pop music with love and respect, even though it's silly, just about Ruben and the Jets, and that is the side that I really like. And that was, what I remember thinking that when the, when he said the Turtles were joining way back in the day, and I really enjoyed Ruben and the Jets. Oh, good, perhaps they'll do a lot of that stuff, mm. mixed in with the avant-garde music and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I mean, it's probably, I guess you could say that on a sort of collegiate you know, high school slash collegiate level humor, that it's arguably certainly one of Frank's most accessible albums, if not the most accessible. You know, you can still get fraternity kids to listen to the Fillmore East album and they'll still like it. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, it is... No, every, everybody knows the root songs. Yeah, sure, exactly. That's that's yeah. what everybody remembers, sure. Yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, times I sort of, you know... People, I'll meet people and they'll say, I remember I was in a pub and I was sitting there writing something. Someone said, What are you doing? I said, oh, I'm writing a book about Frank Zappa. And everyone went, Hey, Bobby Brown. <laughs> you know what's funny is I can't really play that because my, um, my, my wife's uh, stepfather's name is Bobby Brown. So whenever okay. they. When, <laughs> So whenever I play that song around here, they think I'm making some kind of comment. <laughs> now, for those of you who want to know more about the history of such things, we've uh, got a little backstory on the Mud Shark incident for you. This is actually a passage from the classic book Hammer of the Gods, the Led Zeppelin saga, which was written by Stephen Davis. And uh, it includes uh, very famous Led Zeppelin road manager Richard Cole, uh, discussing the actual event that led to the creation of the song The Mud Shark after a Led Zeppelin concert in Seattle in 1969. So to quote from the book, 
Two days later, Led Zeppelin's sojourn in Seattle proved to be the end of their reputation as normal humans. Seattle was where the shark episode took place. The show itself was another success. Back at the hotel, the band started drinking. Richard Cole says that what happened later was his fault. The Sharks thing happened at the Edgewater Inn in Seattle. How it came about is that in 1968, I was with Terry Reed supporting the Moody Blues in Seattle, and their road manager told me the band should stay at the Edgewater Inn because there's a tackle shop in the lobby and you can fish right out of the window of the hotel. I said, go on, fuck off, you He said, come on, Richard, I'm not kidding, it's true. So the next time I was in Seattle, I was with Led Zeppelin and Vanilla Fudge, and we started to catch sharks out of the window. By this time, the tours were more and more risque, and you could do what you liked with the girls who showed up at the hotel. For me, the second Led Zeppelin tour was the best time of my life. That was the one. We were so hot and on our way up, but no one was watching too closely so you could play. And these birds were coming to my suite wanting to and me and Bonzo were quite serious about catching these fish. What happened next isn't really clear. One girl, a pretty young groupie with red hair, was disrobed and tied to the bed. According to the legend of the shark episode, Led Zeppelin then proceeded to stuff pieces of shark into her <laughs> Richard Cole says it didn't happen that way. It wasn't John Bonham. It was me. Robert Plant and John Bonham didn't know anything. They were kids. It wasn't shark parts anyway. It was the nose that got put in. Yeah, the shark was alive. It wasn't dead. We caught a big lot of sharks, at least two dozen, stuck coat hangers through the gills and left them in the closet. But the true shark story was that it wasn't even a shark. It was a red snapper that the chick happened to be a red-headed broad with a ginger <laughs> And that is the truth. Bonzo was in the room, but I did it. Mark Stein of Vanilla Fudge filmed the whole thing, and she loved it. It was like you'd like a bit of f***ing, eh? Let's see how your red snapper likes this red snapper. That was it. It was the nose of the fish, and the girl must have f***ed 20 times. I'm not saying the chick wasn't drunk. I'm not saying that any of us weren't drunk. But it was nothing malicious or harmful. No way. No one was ever hurt. She might have been hit by a shark a few times for disobeying orders, but she didn't get hurt. Some of the GTOs heard about this and told their patron, Frank Zappa, who wrote the song The Mud Shark, about the incident. In addition to this, we've got a track that Frank released on the... Playground Psychotics album in 1992. Uh, this is a piece that is known as the Mud Shark Interview, and it features Frank Zappa talking to the manager of the Edgewater Inn in Seattle, Martin Tickman, about um, some of the things that people can do with poles and fish and um, maybe certain other recreational intent. Here now on the ZappaCast, the Mud Shark interview. What's your name? I'm Martin Tickman. And what is your position here? Front office manager. The name of this establishment is? This is the Edgewater Inn. In Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me uh, how some rock and roll groups have taken advantage of this unique situation? They've taken advantage in uh, different ways. Uh, we do encourage uh, and advertise that you can fish from your room. And we are glad to have our guests fish from them. Do you supply them with fishing equipment? No, but we have a shop in the hotel that does rent the equipment as well as bait. What sort of bait do they usually use? Uh, It's a preserved minnow of some variety. I don't know exactly what the fish is. Well, what do they do after they fish from the window? Well, rock and roll bands and other guests as well uh, often catch shark and squid and octopus and 
Usually it, we, it lands up either in the bathtub or dribbled on the floor on the way to the bathtub. Mm -hmm. But it's not reserved to uh, to any rock and roll bands. I mean, other guests do it too. Mm -hmm. But how frequently do you find squids and sharks and octopuses in the bathtubs of the rooms here at the hotel? After almost any good weekend of pretty heavy occupancy, say like over half the house filled. If you have over the, we, over we half the house filled, find, you would find one, say? Uh, yeah, say one. So how often Without would you here. say that is each week? Twice a week um, you find a... Well, I, w I don't know that I would say that it would average anything like that. You may find uh, four or five rooms with fish from various places, you know, around. Mm -hmm. There's not much you can do with a shark after you've caught him, you know, and some of these things are pretty big. Well, what would you imagine is done with these uh, sharks after they've been caught before they're left uh, for you to be cleaned Sometimes up? Sometimes the guest calls the house man or housekeeper to haul it away because there's nothing that they can do with it. Yeah, well... <laughs> Have you ever heard of any of the things that were done with them before they were hauled away? Yes, a lot of some people like to uh, perform vivisection on them or something like that, and yeah. occasionally you find a little bit of a mess. Yeah. I'll say that the, the the blood on the carpet syndrome is rather <laughs> rather rare, but it uh, occasionally happens. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find fish blood on the sheets of your uh, beds here? <laughs> Not identifiable as such. No. I see. Do you know of any stories about uh, bizarre uh, sexual activities performed with squid, octopus, and mud sharks here in your rooms? No, I should think a mud shark would be a little uncomfortable since their skin is so sandy, but uh, I've never heard of anyone having it with an octopus. As any fool know, another beetle appeared with Zapper and the Mothers during this period. Yes, long-lost John and his fragrant missus, Yoko Ono, I don't believe it. Here, Frank tells how that all came to pass and about the messy aftermath. I was uh, scheduled to do an interview with Howard Smith from a radio station in uh, New York. And at one o'clock in the afternoon, I was awakened out of bed in my hotel room, came stumbling to the door in my pants with my hair in my eyes and all kinds of little sleep dust. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, God, another interview. And I opened the door, and here's Howard standing at the door with a, with a tape recorder already flailing away and stuffs a microphone on my face and says, Hi, Frank, I brought along two friends of mine. This is John and Yoko, and I was supposed to go eek and stumble backwards in a blind stupor. Well, I said, Okay, you guys, come on in. So they walked in and sat down and, you know, started doing this interview and blah and blah and interview and blah and blah and blah and then finally when the interview was over i said would you guys like to jam with us tonight at the fillmore and john said well he he didn't think that he would but yoko was positive that she would and so i said well okay yoko uh you know come on down and uh come down a little early and you know, come in the dressing room and we'll figure out something that we can do uh that will musically relate after the concert. So we sat around in this little room upstairs and played some old rhythm and blues stuff for a while. And then they, they went out and sat in the sound mixer's booth throughout the show. And I guess they liked it a lot because when the thing was over, they both ran down. They were ready to go on as, as soon as we went off. So uh, we played for about 40 minutes, I guess. And... It just so happened that we had made arrangements to record <clears throat> that night. That's when we, the same night we did the Fillmore album. And the whole thing got laid down on tape. And John and I had an agreement that we were going to jointly mix the tape and uh, decide how we were going to put it out. You know, because there are 
big contract difficulties involved in getting the thing out. So it sat around for a while, I guess about a year, and uh, there was nothing done about releasing it. Finally, I got word that uh, John <clears throat> was going to release it and that uh, some negotiation was going to be worked out. But that negotiation never occurred, as a matter of fact. He went in, I'd, I'd sent him a, a safety copy of the 16-track Masters, and uh, I guess he went in with Phil Spector and mixed the thing with this ridiculous tape delay echo on it. He turned off Mark and Howard's voices on the the uh, section called Scumbag, and they were the only ones who were really singing on it, and you can't even hear, hear them on their version of the thing. I have a mix of the thing, too. You wouldn't even recognize the, the two events. And... You know, they did weird things like uh, put in certain applause where it didn't really occur, and you know they changed the thing around. And then the ultimate insult was to take uh, the tune King Kong, which was obviously an ensemble performance, you know, where everybody in the mothers knew what they were playing. They were playing the melody. It was obviously a song. Uh, you know, if it if it had been a situation where uh, I was mixing the thing, I would say, well, that's obviously a song. What is the name of that song, and who has the writing and publishing on that? Well, it didn't occur in their case. They retitled King Kong Jam Rag, took the publishing and writing credit, and put that on the album that way. You know, So <laughs> consequently, there was a number of very irate phone calls between our office and Alan Klein, and you know, a bunch of uh, show business crap. <laughs> Of course, Frank eventually released his own version of their performance together, and I'm about to play you a couple of extracts from the Lennon and Zappa edits of the old Olympic song, Well. Lennon's introduction is not quite true, as he recorded the song at Abbey Road on the 19th of February 1971, during the session for Power to the People. It was done as a birthday treat for Yoko. Anyway, see if you can spot the join. for a minute so you can hear what we're going to do. And for, and for those of you in the band who have no idea what's about to happen, this is an A minor, and it's not standard blues changes. But it's close. Yeah, this is a song that I used to sing when I was in the cabin in Liverpool. I haven't done it since, so...
During the time of the film or performance, Don Preston wasn't officially part of the band, but sat in that night. He vividly recalls Yoko jumping into a burlap bag during the song Scumbag and thought it was all very demeaning. Another unofficial member of the vaudeville band, and also another Lennon, was Nigel Lennon. Many fans were unaware of Nigel until after Frank's passing, when she wrote one of the better obituaries. It transpired that she and Frank enjoyed both a personal and professional relationship. Although she learnt the band's repertoire and was present at many shows, she only got to play a handful of gigs, being employed principally to step in should any of the druggies in the band suffer from selective amnesia. You can read all about their time together in her very well-written book, Being Frank. Nigel tells me it should be available as an e-book at some point very soon. In it, she mentions that one night Frank asked her if she had ever composed any serious music, and so she played him a tape of her piano composition, Opus One. This was inspired by the introduction to Frank's Little House, and Nigel very kindly allowed me to include this recording, um, an FZ-approved master, if you will, on my 21 Burnt Weenie Sandwiches CD. So let's hear that now.
here now to wrap up the second part of our three-part look at the vaudeville band on the ZappaCast. We're going to have um, two tracks for you, um, two fairly rare tracks from that period. The, the first is Willie the Pimp Part 2, which was included on the original Fillmore East June 1971 vinyl record, but was edited out by Frank uh, of the subsequent CD reissues of that album, and uh, to this day is not available on a uh, major Frank Zappa release. And the uh, second piece that you're going to hear is uh, Junior Mint's Boogie, which was released as the B-side of Tears Began to Fall uh, on uh, 1971 single. So here to close out this second part of our three-part look at the Vaudeville Band, Willie the Pimp Part 2, and Junior Mint's Boogie. 